It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he, that's Jesus, said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They say unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what you ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptised withal shall ye be baptised. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, the disciples, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Amen. Well, we left the story uh, last week with Jesus telling the disciples again about his suffering and the death that he was heading towards. And when you consider that it was it was quite graphic, he said, you know, he would be uh, spit on and beaten and, and so on before he was killed. We're taken aback, really, that some of the disciples are still thinking about their own ambitions. Now, James and John, we saw they were the ones involved and they were brothers. They'd been fishermen. If you cast your mind back to the beginning of the chapter, they were in the act of uh, fishing at the time when they were called. And among the twelve, they'd been quite privileged. I mean, Jesus had allowed them to witness things that he denied of most of the other disciples. For example, when he was transfigured, when Jesus... His face changed when he was up the mountain and he was full of glory and they, they were amazed at the sight. And James and John got to see this. And here they're asking Jesus for special positions of authority in his kingdom. I'm thinking that maybe they assumed because they'd, be on, they'd been honoured by Jesus in the way they had they 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 thought they were they were special and they wanted to ensure that the, this status was recognized in those places of honor beside Jesus one on the right and one on the left so asking this now it is obviously inappropriate it it shows their lack of understanding about the nature of this new kingdom I said last week that, that that prediction by Jesus was the third one 
that he'd made. Each one was special in its own way. But following on from those predictions by Jesus, we had reactions. I want to look at each of those three reactions. Back in chapter 8, how did Peter react? Peter takes Jesus to one side and tells him to stop talking about dying. He probably thought it would demoralise the team. In chapter 9, the disciples are all arguing. Who's, Who's the greatest? Who's the most important? And in chapter 10, after Jesus talking about dying, all their thoughts about getting a piece of the power in the kingdom. Now we know what happens in the story. We have a we today have a complete record, not only of Jesus's words and actions, but all the doctrines about it. And we have that in the New Testament. We have two thousand years of teaching people writing books and lots of other helps that, that, that have brought us to the place we're at now and I know we're often we're often exasperated by the behavior of the disciples but we, we shouldn't assume that we'd have acted any differently if we could bring anything positive out of this request we could say at least that they displayed faith that Jesus would be glorified and they acknowledged he had the authority to, to, to make these appointments that they'd asked for. Jesus's response seems quite gentle. He firstly tells them they don't fully understand what they're asking. He goes on to to see if they understand they must suffer if they're to be in the company of the king when he comes into his kingdom in any case he says it's not it's not his business to make such appointments what about this reaction of the other disciples i can't tell i can't tell whether this was righteous indignation or they had ambitions of their own and they didn't want to be left behind. Whatever the case was, Jesus calls them round in a circle to, to have a chat. And what he means to teach them is something he's already taught them. It's the it's that principle, first, the first will be last and the last will be first. Again, the disciples are not so different from us, you know. Think about... Think about how we've had to be, be told something multiple times before it's sunk in. It's the same. It's the same with them. So he explains again, but he uses a slightly different approach. He tells them, "Look around at the leaders of this world. More often than not, the power that comes with these great positions, the power corrupts those who hold them." And nothing's changed from the corruption of the ancient kings in the Bible to the cruelty of the Herodians to the abuse of power by British kings and queens to the widespread uh, slaughters that took place in the 20th century all the way up to the present day where people are 
constantly trying to combat the addictions of leaders who want to exercise greater and greater control. Jesus reminds his disciples that they belong to a different society. It's a, it's a society within this society of this world, but it works with completely different values. The hierarchies of this world are reversed in God's kingdom. The first shall be last. In this setup, we, now we, we, we recognise those of higher rank, whether they're there by birth or ambition, and they're happy to be served by people. Not so in the kingdom of God. Here, its leaders are to minister to everyone else. I'd like us today to think about Jesus' references uh, to his sufferings and look at his role as the ransom for the sins of his people. The ransom. And so the first point to consider is that it's said that he drank the cup of God's wrath. If you are conversant with the scriptures at all, you'll be aware that the cup is used a lot in scripture. It symbolises different things. Generally, the scriptures use it in either a positive or a negative way. It describes, for example, the blessings we receive as believers. It's as if we are drinking a cup full to the brim of blessings. But the most common use of the cup is to talk about drinking God's wrath and this is the sense in which it's used here it's about suffering suffering it says here in John's gospel in chapter 18 and verse 11 Peter had uh, taken his sword out you know to defend Jesus then said then said Jesus unto Peter put up thy sword into the sheath the cup which my father hath given me shall I not drink it now, Peter wanted to protect Jesus from being taken by the authorities. Just, um, but just imagine for a minute, just imagine if Peter had been successful and he'd stopped the crucifixion. There would be no salvation for him or anyone else in history. The last time he tried to interfere with Jesus' mission, thinking he knew best, he got one of the most stern rebukes Jesus gave to anyone get behind me Satan he said Satan God the Father had given the Son as it were a cup full of his wrath to drink and Jesus fully intended to drink it and this of course all refers to his sufferings at Calvary it's as if it's as if the Father had taken all the punishment for all the sins of all the people he intended to save, condensed it into a poisonous concoction and handed it to his own son, knowing the painful death it would cause. That, my friends, is what God has done for you. That is what the God of heaven was prepared to do for you and me. Now Jesus was fully conversant with the scriptures 
And I think he would, of course, be aware that his coming suffering was in fulfilment of that great prophecy of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and this is verses 11 and 12. It says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities, their sins. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bears the, he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, it says, bore the sins of many, many, not just one or two, not just the disciples, not even just, not even all the saints throughout the New Testament church alone. He died for all those throughout history, all those in the Old Testament, those who believed the gospel. The real believers, almost all of them, belonging to the, the nation of the, the Hebrews almost all those were in Israel and they believed the gospel and they, they, they had a trust in a coming redeemer the word redeemer is used in the Old Testament they trusted that he was coming they didn't have the benefit that we have to know how the atonement would be carried out or, or where or even when but they believed in him who they had not seen just like we do Jesus Christ drank the wine of the fury of God the Father he drank it all after his first taste of the pain of an eternal hell he could have stopped he could have summoned legions of angels to destroy his enemies, bring him down from the cross and minister to him. He could have stopped the pain and lived a peaceful life into his old age. But he continued to drink. And it may well be even a mistake for me to, to even try to describe what, what he felt on the cross. But I, I'm guessing that he was wondering if it would ever end. But friends, had he stopped, had he bore all your sins but one, you would be lost. He made sure that he stayed there and he took the punishment for every last sin you and I have ever committed, if we're believers today. Well, how else is it described? He was overwhelmed with suffering. So the second way that he describes his his death is is suffering and death is as a baptism. Now, because we use this term baptism for different things, Christians Christians often think when they see this word, it refers to people being baptized with water. 
Bible students need to be aware. When they were baptised with water, that was merely a representation of, of, of something that happened to them spiritually. The word translated baptism means, it could mean to be immersed or overwhelmed with water. The real point is not the contact with the liquid, but the change that it brings about. And so God uses this word to describe how the convert to Christ is changed fundamentally. Here though, the, the fundamental change for Jesus is from his being alive and well to being in pain and dying. We can see another use of water in Psalm 69. It says, Save me, O God, for the waters are coming unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. It's a personal lament of David's. And he describes his desperate situation as being like drowning in troubles. And in Psalm 18, we see an example of how being delivered by God uh, is like being rescued from drowning. He sent me from, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out, he pulled me out of many waters. And so it is, we see Jesus overwhelmed by the waves of the anger of God. He was being drowned, as it were, by his own father. A person who'd done nothing wrong. But, unlike David, there was to be no deliverance here. The thrice holy God had determined to go through with this. He meant to see it through right to the end. And the Son of God, being so overwhelmed by this experience, even shouts out, to his father in heaven from the cross why have you abandoned me he says why have you abandoned me yet even then his father would not stop the punishment would continue until the bitter end those sea billows would crash upon the sun and cover him and would only end when Jesus said it's done it's finished and then he died. And in all this, Jesus became the ransom for all his people. So we've thought about the use of the cup and baptism to describe what Jesus endured. And now we come to this word ransom. If you think for a minute, you'll maybe recall some other examples of this commercial language in the scripture so the scripture uses things like uh, money transactions to describe what Jesus did one example for is redemption say if someone is short of money do they do do they have these in other countries i think they do pawn shops if you if you're short of money you can and you've got a piece of jewelry that's worth something not like this if you if you um if you've got an expensive piece of jewelry you can go and take it to the pawn shop and they will they will give you some money to get you through the week 
and eventually it's hoped that you will be in um, back on your feet financially and you can take your little ticket of your redemption if you like and you go back to the pawn shop hand over some money with interest and you can get back the item of jewellery so you buy it back now when we think of the term ransom I imagine it might make us think of someone being kidnapped you know the baddies will ask for a sum of money and if it's paid they'll hand the person back over to the family but it's not just about kidnappings we can see an example in the Old Testament back in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 21 and verse 30 of Exodus if there be laid on him a sum of money then he shall give for the ransom of his life whatsoever is laid upon him now this is an example where a man had had done something wrong and, and the law was that he should be put to death for it however if the family of the victim chose to they could ask of the man a sum of money in exchange for his life so the man man hands over this pile of cash and he gets to live and it's described there as a ransom and this is how it's described in the passage we're looking at today so I don't need to remind you that we all came into this world sinning and no matter how many or how few no matter how serious or how trivial in our eyes every one of our sins is an offence against God and he has a right to insist on punishment for those crimes the huge problem for the human race is the breaking of God's law just one even carries the death penalty we must be put to death God cannot let people off is he's a more righteous judge than that we must be put to death it's not even though a painless uh, snuffing out a quick end to your existence after all that's not punishment is it his death penalty is it's more fitting for the seriousness of the crime of offenses against God not offenses against some man or woman offenses against God so his death penalty is like someone being put to death every second if you like continually forever now had God decided to just take the whole human race and consign them to the prison of of this punishment he'd remain a just and holy God but it was his desire to save some of mankind And in his infinitely brilliant mind, he drew up the plan of redemption. He made a way so that people would escape punishment and instead receive eternal life. And so it was that he supplied his own son to take our punishment instead of us, releasing us forever. This was a ransom like no other. The price that needed to be paid was not monetary. It was the very life of the Son of God. 
this ransom price was paid in full and having been paid the father was gladly constrained to issue you and I with royal pardons so friends we're to forever show our appreciation for what God did for us in eternity I think we'll never grow tired of saying thank you thank you God every moment every moment of eternity will be a wonderful gift and we'll praise God for it um, what's one of God now as well of course it, it says here in First uh, Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 for ye are bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's bought with a price the price of the life of the son of God so there's that money language being used again it's it's as if we were in the slave market waiting to be sold to the highest bidder and then God comes along and buys us all and then we we become his we, we enter joyfully into his service I'd like to very briefly mention this phrase ransom for many now Christianity is divided on a certain point into, into two opinions most believe that Jesus died for every member of the human race while others believe he died only for his chosen elect people and I think most of you will know where I stand on this matter I find it preposterous to think that Jesus redeemed everyone while at the same time intending to afterwards consign most of them to the lake of fire God's election that is when he, he drew up the list of all those he would save was limited to a certain number and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life is likewise only given to a certain number the same people yet we're told that at Calvary Jesus carried out a universal act of salvation brothers and sisters Jesus Christ went to Calvary to pay the ransom for his elect alone and his mission was 100% successful not one person who he died for will be lost every single one of them either has been or shall be ushered into God's kingdom and will enjoy his presence forever The disciples, they had this question put to them. Were they too willing to suffer like their master? Were they willing to be overwhelmed if necessary for the sake of Christ? Were they prepared, if it came to it, to be immersed in trials to the point of despair? And were they prepared to drown under it if necessary, to die? If, if you have a look 
at our passage, you'll see the two disciples' responses were, response, they, they were a little too quick. Do you not think? Jesus said, can you go through all this and that? And they went, yeah. Without any thought, they immediately answered Jesus. Yes, they say, we're prepared to do all that. Now, it was a right answer. But I don't think they understood the seriousness of what they were confessing. In the service of Christ, our captain, the captain of our salvation, we must be prepared to suffer and make sacrifices. Now, I've said to you before, we are to a degree glorified right now if we were in if we are in Christ. But there's a greater glory to come. But the path to it has many obstacles, diversions, traps. If only the disciples had known what we know. We get to read these accounts of what happened to Jesus in the end. The disciples were, were looking forward to a takeover, a, a coming takeover, and, and Jesus being in charge, and what, whatever form it took, they wanted to be in those positions of authority. On the one on the right hand of Jesus the King, and the other on the left, the most exalted positions possible. But we get to see, through the scriptures, we get to see Calvary. We see Jesus not sitting on a majestic throne, but hanging on a cheap cross. We see Jesus not surrounded by adulating subjects, but by a crowd that mocked him. Calvary was a victory. There's no doubt about that. But that scene was one of humiliation, torture and death. You see then, the Son of God would there have to experience being flanked by criminals before enjoying his glorification, where he would be flanked by his fellow heirs of salvation, the believers. It's interesting that Jesus accepts the confession of the two disciples. He says to them, okay, you're right. You will drink this cup and you will be baptised in suffering now we know it wasn't in the same way as Jesus suffered and their sufferings would not contribute in any way to their salvation but he acknowledges they will suffer and, and this was borne out in history we read in the book of Acts that uh, James was uh, martyred he was martyred by Herod now we think John lived to be to be an old man but he still suffered still suffered persecution he was still banished to the island of Patmos In applying all these things to ourselves we should I I I want to point out something uh, something subtle a point that Jesus makes that that we we can't we're not able to detect as we read the Bible in English. If you have a look at verses uh, 43 and 44. Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever wants to be the chiefest shall be the servant of everyone. 
The word minister in verse 43 comes from the Greek word diakonos, meaning servant. Diakonos, it's where we get our word deacon from, deacon. But in verse 44, the word used there is servant. It says servant of all. And this word servant comes from the Greek word doulos, meaning slave. So it goes from servant to slave. And Jesus is bringing in this more intense language to get across this idea of what it means to be a follower of his. If you, friends, want to be a proper functioning believer on Jesus Christ, you must be prepared to become enslaved to your brethren and to God. That's the level of service he wants from you. Our beautiful, marvellous saviour and king was prepared to become a suffering servant for our sakes. He asks us to do far less for him. How can we refuse? Suffering service. That's our lot in this world. But even when our service involves suffering, as it so often does, we know that God is in it. He will not allow it to go any further than what he has determined. And what's more, he'll deliver you out of your suffering one way or the other. And then you have that gift, that gift of eternal life waiting for you, a gift that is yours by the promise of God himself. So friends, this this suffering service is not something to be endured, but as far as possible, to be enjoyed. So embrace the service of Christ with joy, knowing that even our trials are meant for our good and also for the good of the Lord's people generally. Now, may the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you've suffered for a while, make you perfect, establish you and settle you. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our meeting this morning. I hope I hope there's been something there for you. I really do. And I, and I pray you will be able to treasure up God's word in your heart and keep it there and for those of you who will be joining on Wednesday or see you then uh, for everyone else we shall see you next week goodbye